Well, good morning. Welcome back to Sunday School, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the Lord of history. Teach us more about those who came before us and the legacies they've left us, so we might be encouraged, warned, enlightened, and most of all, God, see just how great a God you are and working all things well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have come to our last lesson on notable leaders in the early church. Really, our whole course is nearly at an end. We began this course by looking at the broad issues and developments that came about in the first four to five centuries of the church. We started by considering, or yes, so we talked about the broad movements and developments, and then we started considering specific persons, our church fathers, and the notable legacies that they have left us, sometimes helpful legacies, sometimes not so helpful, sometimes encouraging, sometimes a word of warning, an example of warning, but all of it enlightening, all of it illuminating our understanding for where we are, where Christianity is, and where the world is today. Well, last week we looked at important, three important church fathers and their legacies from the fourth century. We first looked at Athanasius. Do you remember what's his big contribution? What's his significance? I called Athanasius the, what did he defend? The Trinity. He's the Trinity defender, one of the foremost defenders of the Trinity against Arianism. And we also looked at John Chrysostom. What's John Chrysostom all about? He's that golden mouth preacher. He's the foremost expositor of the fourth century. And we also finished by looking at Jerome. What's Jerome's significance? That's right, his translation. A translation which would have a profound impact on the history of the church, the Vulgate translation. Now, as significant as these three men are in our history, in Christian history, no theologian was more important in the early period and in the centuries that proceeded from the early period than Augustine. Two ways that people pronounce his name. Some say Augustine, others say Augustine. I prefer Augustine, but either one is fine. Even today, 15, 1,600 years later, we are still being profoundly influenced by Augustine's thought. For instance, when people critique a war as being unjust, they are invoking concepts from Augustine. Or where people explain original sin, total depravity, divine election, they often draw upon explanations given by Augustine. And when theologians talk about someone seeking ultimate happiness in God, the joy of the Lord, well, Augustine stands out as one of the finest examples of somebody doing so. Of course, Augustine, like the other men that we've studied, wasn't perfect. He had some really weird parts to his theology and his interpretive method, but he was definitely a spiritual giant, highly influential in our history. So this morning, let's learn about Augustine, as well as the man who helped lead Augustine to Christ, a man significant in his own right, Ambrose. So we're learning about Ambrose and Augustine in Lesson 11 of our Church History 101 course. And we're going to start with Ambrose. Ambrose of Milan. He came first chronologically, so it makes sense to start with him. 
If you want a phrase to remember what's the primary significance of this church father, then I think a good description is church supremacist. Ambrose, the church supremacist. And you'll see why I've given that title in a moment. Who was Ambrose? By the way, I gave a little aside last week about how the pictures I show are not necessarily accurate, but this picture, this mosaic, may actually be a contemporary representation of Ambrose. That actually may be what Ambrose looked like. Rare, but. Who was Ambrose? Ambrose was born to an aristocratic Christian family in Augusta Trevororum, which is modern-day Trier in Germany. His father was governor of the Roman province of Gaul, which was the territory that extended from France to Germany, a large territory. And Ambrose, like his father, sought a career in government. Ambrose received his education in Rome. He was trained there in rhetoric, literature, and law. And in 372, Ambrose became the regional governor of northern Italy, ruling out of the city of Mediolanum, or Milan, as we call it today. And Ambrose served in this position for three years, governor of northern Italy. But Ambrose made a sudden switch from secular governor to church leader. How did that come about? Well, the circumstances are pretty remarkable. Remember that after the Council of Nicaea, and when was that again? What year? 325. That's a date in history that's useful to remember. Council of Nicaea in 325. After that, remember, even though Arianism was condemned, it didn't go away. It would be another 60, 70 years of Arianism existing in the empire in a strong way. Well, in 374, so this is about 50 years after Nicaea, the bishop of Milan died. And there was a power struggle between the Arian Christians and the Catholic, or that is the Nicene Trinitarian Christians, as to who would become the next bishop. Each side wanted their own bishop, and they couldn't agree to who would succeed, who would become the lead pastor or elder of this church. So fearing a riot in his own city, Ambrose went to the church where the next bishop was to be elected, and he pleaded with those present to peaceably elect a new bishop. But during Ambrose's speech, a voice called out from the crowd, Ambrose for bishop. And this idea seemed to satisfy both parties. And soon everyone inside the church was chanting, Ambrose for bishop, Ambrose for bishop. Much to Ambrose's dismay. Though Ambrose had already confessed himself to be a Christian at this point, he had never studied theology and had never even been baptized. He did not want to be bishop. He actually exited the church, hid at a friend's house. But later, a letter arrived from the emperor approving Ambrose's appointment as bishop, approving the popular support for Ambrose. And because of these two things, Ambrose's friend eventually gave him up, and Ambrose accepted the appointment. So in just one week, Ambrose was baptized and ordained the Bishop of Milan. Obviously, that's not something that we should try at home, but something that they did here. And like many other bishops in this time period, as soon as Ambrose took the post, he renounced his worldly goods and became an ascetic. He would never get married. Well, despite his lack of theological training, Ambrose... As soon as he took the post, he vigorously applied himself to the ministry as a bishop. 
He became an extremely eloquent preacher, according to the Alexandrian school of interpretation, which is what again? Symbolic, allegorical, more metaphorical interpretation of the Bible. But he was an elegant preacher, and he became a prolific writer as well. Many of Ambrose's treatises, sermons, letters survive today. Roman Catholic Church considers Ambrose, along with Jerome, one of the four doctors of the church. In the patristic period, they assigned four people as doctors, eminent teachers. Jerome, Ambrose, and we're going to see Augustine is another one, and then Gregory the Great, who comes in the early medieval period. But he's considered very, very important to them. Ambrose even wrote hymns for the Latin West and is credited with popularizing antiphonal chanting in the church. Antiphonal is call and response. That might not be true, but it's often credited with it. Certainly did work in hymns. Ambrose, after being elected Bishop of Milan, he continued to serve in that post until his death in 397. And today his remains are now lavishly decorated and on display in a crypt in a Milanese church. So there's the summary of his life, but why do I call Ambrose the church supremacist? Well, it all has to do with how specifically he dealt with government as a churchman. Now, the authors of one of the books I've used for this course, Through the Ages, History of the Christian Church, they give a very helpful breakdown of Ambrose's views when it came to government in the church, and I'm going to use their outline uh, and share it with you. Ambrose promoted three main ideas when it came to the church and government. And the first is that it is the government's duty to promote true religion and discourage false religion and heresies. Government can't be laissez-faire in Ambrose's view and just tolerate everybody. You need to promote the truth and you need to uh, demote, you need to even persecute error and heresy and false religion. And to illustrate this, Listen to a letter sent from Ambrose to Emperor Theodosius I. In the context of this letter, a bishop and a mob of Christians have recently burnt, burnt down a synagogue. And Theodosius, consequently, has ordered the Christians to pay for and rebuild it. This is the context. Christians have just burnt down the synagogue. Theodosius says, you have to rebuild it. Here's an excerpt from Ambrose's letter in response to those two things. And yet, how great a thing it is, O Emperor, that you should not think it necessary to inquire or to punish in regard to a matter as to which up to this day no one has inquired, no one has ever inflicted punishment. It is a serious matter to endanger your salvation for the Jews. When Gideon had slain the sacred calf, the heathen said, the gods will themselves avenge the injury done to them. Who is to avenge the synagogue? Christ, whom they slew, whom they denied? Will God the Father avenge those who do not receive the Father, since they have not received the Son? Who is to avenge the heresy of the Valentinians? That's Gnostics. How can your piety avenge them, seeing it has commanded them to be excluded and denied and denied them permission to meet together. If I set before you Josiah as a king approved of God, will you condemn that in them which was approved in him? What's Ambrose's main point when it comes to this rebuilding of the synagogue? 
That's right. In Ambrose's view, it was good that it was burnt down. And the emperor should not require it to be rebuilt, should not punish Christians for what they did. And why not? Go ahead. Exactly. So Ambrose's view, the Jews are heathens, so they don't deserve the same benefits and protections as Christians do. Now, what does Ambrose use to support this point of view? He uses the example of the Old Testament. He goes to the scriptures. You had people like Gideon and Josiah destroying false places of worship. They weren't going around being like, well, you know, they got their way and I got my way and we'll just continue worshiping in our own different ways. He says, no. Gideon went and destroyed the idol that was in his town. And Josiah went into the northern kingdom and killed all the false priests and got rid of their idols. Why are you doing differently than them? So you can see that to use the Old Testament in this way as support, Ambrose is assuming something about Christian rule, about Christian rulers. And Ambrose's mind, what nation should Christian rulers use as the example for their government? It would be Old Testament Israel. How should a Christian rule? Well, like the kings and godly persons did in the Old Testament. Now, this is a significant argument because there was no toleration, no accommodation of false religion in Israel. Or at least there wasn't supposed to be. God commanded the Israelites and their kings to kill false prophets, destroy idols, defile pagan altars. Good kings did this. Bad kings did not do this. And in the minds of the Christians of the 4th century, God had rejected and judged the Jews, so they're not really Israel anymore. Who's the new Israel? Well, the Christians are, and even the Christian empire is. Therefore, where Israel failed in following God in the Old Testament, Christian Rome could succeed if Roman emperors would do what Old Testament Israelite kings sometimes failed to do, root out false religion. This is his argument. But what's the fundamental problem with this way of thinking? Exactly. Even though there are some parallels maybe between Old Testament Israel and, and Christian kingdoms, they're not the same. Christianity is not the new Israel, and Christian government is not necessarily to be the same as Old Testament Israel's government. It was a unique government at that time. And this is important for us even in our own lives today. We must remember that God did some things with Israel that were unique and not necessarily to be imitated by us as Christians. Certainly in the New Testament, you don't see commands or examples of Christians going to foreign temples and smashing idols, destroying synagogues, using political power to promote the church. If converts wanted to destroy their own idols, like the Ephesians did with their magic books, well, praise God. That is a, that is a mark of repentance. That is a wonderful thing. But we are not called in the New Testament to take, to vandalize, to destroy the worship property of other religions. Instead, we Christians are called by the power of the Spirit to destroy something else. What are we to destroy? Yes. 
yes, but not in the physical form, but spiritually. So 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5 says this, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What kind of fortresses? We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We're in a war for minds and souls. With scripture we destroy the deceptive fortresses raised up in men's minds against the truth. In our own minds and in those around us. With a message of salvation we annihilate the prideful notions of men. But we don't go around destroying churches or synagogues. So we can understand where Ambrose is coming from in this letter. But we nonetheless, we nonetheless must disagree with his interpretation regarding the role of Christian government according to the Old Testament. Ambrose is thinking, while I think biblically in error, it actually did prevail on the emperor. He chose to follow Ambrose's advice mentioned before, but Theodosius I, Theodosius the Great, he is the first Christian emperor to outlaw other religions and subject them to official persecution. You can actually hear that in the letter. He's like, you forbid the Valentinians from meeting. Why are you not going to do the same thing for the Jews? Because Theodosius at first just forbid Christian heresies, but later it was all religions outside of Christianity. I think there was small toleration for the Jews, but really it was limited. So Theodosius went along with Ambrose's view. Ambrose maintained that it is the government's duty to discourage religion outside the true church. He wanted the bonds of church and state, in one sense, to be extremely close. And in many ways, that was consistent with the spirit of the era. There's no separation of church and state. Whatever the emperor's religion is, is to be the religion of the empire. Anyone outside of that is to be persecuted. So this is the first main idea that Ambrose promoted. But what about the government's role inside the church? Outside the church, promote the church. Inside the church, well, Ambrose's second idea is that the government should have no authority inside the church, particularly when it comes to spiritual matters. This may seem like the opposite of what we just saw. With the government, in one sense, he wanted the church and state to become closer, but that was just to external matters. When it came to the Christian church and who's going to be bishop, what the decisions of a church council should be, Ambrose believed that the church should be completely independent from the secular government. There should be no bond between the state and church when it came to that situation. And we can see this in another letter from Ambrose to an emperor. This time, not Theodosius. This is earlier to the Western emperor, Valentinian II. In the context of this letter, Ambrose has been summoned by Valentinian to a theological debate. And the emperor was going to serve as the judge or the arbiter of this debate. But Ambrose chose not to go. What? The emperor summoned, the emperor himself summoned you to this theological debate and you're not going to go? Well, listen to his explanation. Excerpt here. No one ought to consider me consummatious, that is stubbornly rebellious, when I affirm that your father of August memory not only replied by word of mouth, but also sanctioned by his laws that in a matter of faith or any ecclesiastical ordinance, 
he should judge who was not unsuited by office, nor disqualified by equity. For these are the words of the rescript. That is, it was his desire that priests should judge concerning priests. Moreover, if a bishop were accused of other matters also, and a question of character was to be inquired into, it was also his will that it, this should be reserved for the judgment of bishops. When have you heard, most gracious emperor, that laymen gave judgment concerning a bishop in a matter of faith? Are we so prostrate through the flattery of some as to be unmindful of the rights of the priesthood? And do I think that I can entrust to others what God has given me? If a bishop is to be taught by a layman, what will follow? Let the layman argue and the bishop listen? Let the bishop learn of the layman? But undoubtedly, whether we go through the series of the Holy Scriptures or of times of old, who is there who can deny that in a matter of faith, in a matter I say of faith, bishops are wont or accustomed to judge a Christian emperors, not emperors and bishops. And that's pretty strongly presented. Why didn't Ambrose go to the debate judged by the emperor? What's his answer? Yeah, emperor has no authority. Theological matters are to be judged by church leaders, bishops, not emperors. He's emphatic. Ambrose is emphatic here that the emperor is not the head of the church. And so it does not have a right. The emperor does not have a right to make judgments for the church. The ones with the right of church authority are the elders or the bishops chosen by the people and chosen by other bishops. Now, I think there's a, a sense in which those words should resonate with us. We should agree in part with what Ambrose is saying. But there's also a little bit of discomfort there, or at least there should be. We might first be asking, wait, can't every Christian, can't any Christian understand the Bible and make judgments, come to conclusions, make decisions about it? Well, what do you think? Can any Christian understand the Bible? Yes, it is a perspicuous document. It is meant to make wise the simple. So we should maybe feel a little discomfort about Ambrose saying, hey, laymen, what do they have to say when it comes to spiritual matters? But that being said, Ambrose is right to say that biblically, the ones given leadership authority, the ones given decision-making authority for God's church are not emperors, but qualified elders, presbyters, overseers. And this is why we have commands like Hebrews 13, 17, Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, that is, leaders in the church. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. It's never that bishops, elders, that they are to be unquestioned, that it's just blind submission, but God did ordain for the leadership, the government of his church, that it would be elder-led. And that authoritative, decisive decisions when it comes to various matters, it would be ultimately decided by them under the headship of Christ. So the scripture is still over the elders, but in terms of spiritual authority, God has ordained the elders. Certainly, we would be aghast today if the local mayor, the township, or the New Jersey governor, or even our president started to make decisions to theology or ecclesiology of the church. 
Oh, well, we're going to decide who's going to be the pastor here. We're going to decide what you're allowed to pray, what you're allowed to teach. Ambrose has a similar kind of outrage. All right, outrage is a little too strong, but he, he is quite convinced that the emperor, secular leaders, cannot decide matters for the church, spiritual matters for the church. Of course, this has intersected with our own time in a very obvious way when it came to the pandemic, right? There's a lot of questions about what is the government really allowed to tell the church to do, especially when it infringes on what the Bible, what Christ has commanded us to do, and what the elders of a church have felt led in their study of the scriptures to lead the church in. Yeah, Glenda. There is certainly a connection to that passage in um, 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, where he says, why are you bringing your lawsuits before unbelievers? Is there nobody in the church going to decide those matters? That is uh, something that takes maybe extended thought, though, because um, there might be some matters. It's not as if to say, oh, Christians should never go before the secular law courts, but it does say, like, if there's a matter that can be decided by the church just within your uh, your own setting, it's way better for that to happen than for you to go before unbelievers and to denigrate the witness of Christ. Now, sometimes somebody in the church will not submit to the direction of the church, the direction of the elders, and it does become a matter of secular judgment. So it's not as if God, or God was saying through Paul, never go before the secular law courts. But you're right, Glenda. Ambrose, in many ways, is saying the same thing as Paul does there. Um, Spiritual matters are to be decided in the context that God gave for those spiritual matters to be decided, which is the church. So I think we can see with the second idea a certain amount of agreement uh, that Ambrose was saying some true things here, even if eh, maybe the, say, the way he said it, said it and the extent to which he said it was a little bit uncomfortable. But do you notice that last statement he, he says here in this excerpt? Bishops are to judge emperors, not emperors' bishops. Well, this concept would appear also in a stronger way in the third idea that Ambrose promoted. Not only should government promote true religion and discourage false religion and have no authority when it comes to spiritual matters in the church, but government, in Ambrose's mind, is subject to the spiritual authority of the church. So you're not deciding matters for the church. The church is actually deciding matters for you. This is the way it ought to be, according to Ambrose. The church has the right to make moral judgments on the government's actions and even apply censure and call for repentance. And this claim is only logical. With Christ as the ultimate authority for the church, the Bible as Christ's authoritative revelation, Christian bishops as the authorities of interpreting and explaining the Bible, it follows in Ambrose's mind that bishops have authority over emperors. And he asserted this authority in a very famous way with Emperor Theodosius. In a, uh, in a certain instance, 390, Emperor Theodosius had heard that one of his officials had been murdered by a mob in Thessalonica. He was enraged over this, and he immediately ordered a massacre of the people there. 7,000 people were put to death by Emperor Theodosius in Thessalonica for killing this one official. Now, he issued that statement in his anger. He did 
later think he shouldn't have done that, but it was done. Well, Amrus didn't think it was done. That issue was not finished. Here's what he actually wrote to the emperor, one of his letters. Here's an excerpt. I urge, I beg, I exhort, I warn, for it is a grief to me that you were an example of unusual piety, who were conspicuous for clemency, who would not suffer single offenders to be put in peril, should not mourn as so many have perished. Though you have waged battle most successfully, though in other matters too you are worthy of praise, yet piety was ever the crown of your actions. The devil envied that which was, most your, was your most excellent possession. Conquer him whilst you still possess that wherewith you may conquer. Do not add another sin to your sin by a course of action which has injured many. Just from this first part, what is it that bothers Ambrose about the emperor's actions? Say that again. Well, not that Theodosius is feeling guilty. It's the fact that he's not feeling guilty about it. Notice he says there, I, uh, it is a grief to me that you who are such an example of piety should not mourn over what you've done. So many have perished. Do not add another sin to your sin by not repenting. It's like Dan Ambrose can understand the emperor making a mistake in his hot anger, but not feeling bad about it, not repenting over it. That's the big concern for Ambrose. And he goes on. I indeed, though a debtor to your kindness, for which I cannot be ungrateful, that kindness which has surpassed that of many emperors, has been equaled by, by one only, I... I say, have no cause for a charge of contumacy against you, but have cause for fear. I dare not offer this sacrifice if you intend to be present. Is that which is not allowed after shedding the blood of one innocent person allowed after shedding the blood of many? I do not think so. What does Ambrose mean by sacrifice here? Yes, this is a reference to communion, the Lord's table. You say, why is he calling it sacrifice? Unfortunately, by the 4th century, we're starting to see a change in understanding of the Lord's Supper, or at least a change in the articulation of it. It is being referred to, at times, as a sacrifice. It's not what the Bible teaches us about the Lord's Supper, but it is an idea that has begun to infiltrate the church from paganism and from that putting Judaism onto Christianity. They were offering sacrifices in the Old Testament where the new priests, we offer a sacrifice now, the sacrifice of Christ. This isn't full-blown transubstantiation, what we see later on in the Roman Catholic Church, but it's trending in that direction. He refers to the Lord's table by sacrifice. But with that understanding, what is Ambrose warning Theodosius about in this excerpt? If he says, I dare not offer the sacrifice if you be present, what is he saying? Yeah. That's right. This is saying, you are in a state of unrepentance, and I don't want to risk you taking of the Lord's table when you will be bringing a curse upon yourself. Basically, you are not allowed to take of communion until you repent. 
Now, this is a bold move from Ambrose. Now, we're actually going to see similar moves <laughs> made in the Reformation period, people trying to protect the Lord's table and protect people, others from the Lord's table. But this is bold for Ambrose to say, Theodosius, unlike many emperors in the West at this time, he had real power. He just massacred 7,000 people on a whim. He could easily add Ambrose to that number for refusing communion by shaming the emperor publicly like that. How would Theodosius respond to this challenge? Well, the emperor submitted. He acknowledged his fault, and he engaged in several months of public repentance, showing his repentance, mourning and doing various things in public, before Ambrose felt like, okay, it's real. I relent. You can partake in communion again. This was quite a showdown, but... Ambrose didn't buckle. The emperor was the one who caved. And this was a very significant moment in church-state relations, in the West at least. A powerful emperor, Theodosius, he allowed his authority to be checked by a bishop from the church who was explaining the Bible. Now, this episode would have future implications for political authority of church leaders. We're going to see, when we do get to the Middle Ages, the papacy is going to take this concept much, much further and even depose Christian leaders who, in the Pope's mind, don't deserve to be there. But this is a concept that really was promoted by Ambrose, the church, and those leaders in the church are the judges of secular rulers, not the other way around. Now, of course, there is still a sense in which that's true. And again, in the pandemic, we, we did see that also to a certain degree. And even beyond the pandemic, where pastors, church leaders will call out the actions of government rulers that are sinful, call for repentance. Though we are not deposing <laughs> government rulers, we are not uh, justifying rebellion against them, uh, but we can certainly see some parallel to what Ambrose was saying. So this is why I call Ambrose the church supremacist. He had a somewhat complex relationship with government and very interesting considering his own background in government. But he was not pro-government. He was pro-church over government. He asserted the authority of the true church over false religion and even government. Now, again, I'm just highlighting this as one of the most significant aspects of Ambrose's legacy. He did also have a fruitful ministry of declaring the gospel. But this is one of the main things I want you to remember. The other significant legacy from Ambrose has to do with someone he led to salvation or had a part in leading to salvation. And that's where we turn to our last and the most significant church leader of this period, Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. I call Augustine the legacy provider. It really has to be a catch-all description because he has been so significant in Christian history and in world history. He was a philosopher, theologian, preacher, church leader, thinker, lover of God. Legacy provider is meant to illustrate just what a fundamental influence he has had on the Western church and Western civilization. What are Augustine's two most famous literary works? Anybody know? City of God and the Confessions, yes. He had many others besides those, but those were two of the most famous. And as I explain and summarize Augustine's biography, I'll be drawing on his confessions because they are basically an autobiography, or largely an autobiography of him. So who was Augustine? Augustine was born in Thagast in the Roman province of Africa 
So imagine Central North Africa, modern Algeria. That would be where he was born and lived. He was born to an upper-class family. His father was a pagan, but his mother, Monica, was a devout Christian. And she raised Augustine to be the same. At 17, though, Augustine went to study rhetoric at Carthage in modern Tunisia, and he began living a dissolute life. He became a Manichaean. Remember, that's one of the forms of Gnosticism. He began living with a young woman who later became pregnant with his son. And, and the son was born. And also during this time, Augustine uttered his famous blasphemous prayer to God. Grant me chastity and self-control, but not yet. It's the kind of life that he lived. He finished school, later became a teacher of rhetoric, taking posts in Carthage and then Rome, until at the age of 30, he became professor of rhetoric at the Imperial Court in Milan. This was the most prestigious academic position available in the West. But while in Milan, Augustine heard that there was a bishop who was particularly gifted in the art of rhetoric. The bishop, none other than Ambrose. And Augustine, though at this point he had long abandoned his faith, even moved away from Manichaeism and other Greek philosophy towards skepticism, he decided that he would go and listen to Ambrose. And let's hear Augustine describe his encounter from his confessions. And to Milan I came, to Ambrose the bishop, famed through the whole world as one of the best of men, thy devoted servant. He's talking to God here. That's the way the confessions are written. His eloquent discourse in those times abundantly provided thy people with the flour of thy wheat, the gladness of thy oil, and the sober intoxication of thy wine. To him I was led by thee, Without my knowledge, that by him I might be led to thee in full knowledge. That man of God received me as a father would, and welcomed my coming as a good bishop should. And I began to love him. Of course, not at the first as a teacher of the truth, for I had entirely despaired of finding that in thy church, but as a friendly man. And I studiously listened to him, though not with the right motive, as he preached to the people. I was trying to discover whether his eloquence came up to his reputation, and whether it flowed fuller or thinner than others said it did. And thus I hung on his words intently. But as to his subject matter, I was only a careless and contemptuous listener. I was delighted with the charm of his speech, which is more erudite, though less cheerful and soothing than Faustus' style. As for subject matter, however, there could be no comparison. For the latter was wandering around in Manichaean deceptions, while the former was teaching salvation most soundly. But salvation is far from the wicked, such as I was then when I stood before him. Yet I was drawing nearer, gradually and unconsciously. Augustine loved to listen to Ambrose. But the more he did, the more the suppressed questions he had about Christianity and the guilt he felt about his sin came back to his mind. He was amazed at how reasonably Ambrose explained Christianity and was able to answer the questions that the Manichaeans could not answer. And also that Ambrose was just so happy in God, despite living an honorable and ascetic life. Ambrose's contented celibacy was particularly astonishing to Augustine. More and more, Augustine's skepticism was fading away and was replaced by a conviction that Christianity was true. But he couldn't seem to fully drive out the doubts while listening to Ambrose, God used others in Augustine's life, different Christian friends, even Athanasius. Remember I told you Athanasius wrote a biography about Anthony the Hermit in the desert? 
Well, Augustine read that and was affected by that, as we'll see in just a moment. Monica, too, Augustine's mother, never stopped praying for her son, Augustine, that he would be saved. And when she had opportunities, she would speak about the gospel with him. So more and more, Augustine sought salvation. God was bringing different people in his life to bring him to salvation, but he just couldn't seem to break with his old life of sin. But then God finally did what Augustine could not do himself. This is another section of Augustine's Confessions. This is about his conversion. I flung myself down under a fig tree, how I know not, and gave free course to my tears. The streams of my eyes gushed out an acceptable sacrifice to thee. And not indeed in these words, but to this effect I cried to thee. And thou, O Lord, how long, how long, O Lord, will thou be angry forever? O remember not against us our former iniquities. For I felt that I was still enthralled by them. I sent up these sorrowful cries. How long, how long, tomorrow and tomorrow? Why not now? Why not this very hour make an end to my uncleanness? I was saying these things and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when suddenly I heard the voice of a boy or a girl, I know not which, coming from the neighboring house, chanting over and over again, pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. Immediately I ceased weeping and began most earnestly to think whether it was usual for children in some kind of game to sing such a song, but I could not remember ever having heard the like. So damning the torrent of my tears, I got to my feet, for I could not but think that this was a divine command to open the Bible and read the first passage I should light upon. For I had heard how Anthony, accidentally coming into church while the gospel was being read, received the admonition as if what was read had been addressed to him. Go and sell what you have and give it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. By such an oracle, he was forthwith converted to thee. So, I quickly returned to the bench where Alypius, that's his friend, was sitting. For there I had put down the apostle's book when I had left there. I snatched it up, opened it, and in silence read the paragraph on which my eyes first fell. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to. For instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. Praise the Lord, right? That's how God does it. You, you, you don't even... It can't be fully explained, but he just gives you faith. He regenerates you, causes you to believe just in hearing the scripture finally making it connect in your mind, and that's what happened to Augustine. Augustine believed. He was saved. He was baptized. Baptized by Ambrose, actually, along with Augustine's son, who also believed. Actually, Monica, that faithful witness and prayer warrior, she got to see her whole family redeemed by God. Her husband believed. Her mother, who had lived with them, believed. Her son, her grandson, they were all saved. And God used her as a big part of that. A few years later, though, tragically, when Augustine was returning with his family from Italy to North Africa, his mother died. And a few years later, his son died also. Augustine then decided to become an ascetic. 
He sold all his goods, except for his estate. He gave the money from the sale to the poor, and he turned his house into a monastic community for himself and for some of his friends. And this is the origin of the Augustinian order of monks, which still exists, I think, in the Roman Catholic Church. So he became an ascetic, but God didn't let Augustine stay in isolation. In 391, he became priest in Hippio Regis, a city, major city on the coast of modern Algeria. And drawing on his extensive background in rhetoric, Augustine became an eloquent and popular preacher in the Alexandrian tradition. So he's also moving towards allegorical interpretation. About five years later, he became the bishop in Hippo Regis, and he would remain that until the end of his life. Once serving as bishop, no one was more a prolific writer or preacher than Augustine, producing apologies, sermons, commentaries, polemics, systematic theologies, rules for clerical living, letters, and more. This man wrote so much, and many of his works are still preserved today. Of course, that's one of the reasons why they would have such an impact in the medieval period. Augustine died during the siege of Hippo by Vandals in 430. So Vandals, they were a barbarian tribe. That's actually where we get the word Vandal in a negative sense. He died in the siege, and his body was eventually transferred to a tomb in Pavia, Italy, where it is there to this day. I want to read to you a little bit more from Augustine. We've already heard from his confessions, which are considered a classic in Christian literature even today. In case it wasn't clear, the confessions are an account of Augustine's life leading up to his conversion. It's written as a work of praise to God, really, confession and praise. But I want you to hear from Augustine's other most famous work, The City of God. The City of God is a long work, and it's actually an apologetic. It's primarily an apologetic work. Does anybody know what historical circumstances prompted that work? Well, in 410, the unthinkable happened. Rome was sacked by barbarians. The Visigoths, specifically, attacked and sacked Rome. The city was looted. Many women were raped. Now, for Christians, observing this, and having observed that the empire had become increasingly Christianized, this calamity made no sense. Why would God let this happen? Why would God allow Christian women in that city to be ravished? Isn't the empire more Christian than it ever was? Aren't we living in a more honorable way? Why would God allow this great city to be overcome? Pagans were saying that Rome fell, and there were still many pagans in the empire at this time, Rome fell because the Romans had abandoned their old gods. What were Christians to say in response? Well, Augustine decided to write something. Augustine wanted to con comfort the suffering, confused Christians of Rome and give a response to the pagans who were saying, this is because we abandoned our gods. What Augustine produced was a unique history of mankind from the viewpoint of two metaphorical cities, the city of God and the city of man. And you can hear him describing these two cities in one of the excerpts from his book. I'll give this to you. Accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. 
For the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. The one lifts up its head in its own glory. The other says to its God, you are my glory and the lifter up of mine head. And the one, the princes and the nations it subdues are ruled by the love of ruling. And the other, the princes and the subjects serve one another in love, the latter obeying while the former take thought for all. The one delights in its own strength, represented in the persons of its rulers. The other says to its God, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. So Augustine is constructing this picture of two different cities, two metaphorical cities, and they're driven by a primary love. One loves God, the other loves self. And this city metaphor isn't really one original to Augustine. We actually see it in the Bible, right? A city of God. Philippians 3, 20 to 21 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. Hebrews eleven sixteen is even more explicit. Hebrews eleven sixteen, But as it is, they, that is the faithful patriarchs, who did not receive the promise in their own lifetime, he just talked about that in that section, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Augustine is taking this biblical metaphor and applying it to the Christian's historical situation. He's telling them, brethren, don't be distressed about the trials that you see in the physical world. It's true that righteous behavior often results in temporal blessing as a natural consequence, but that isn't always the case. Because sometimes God is doing things in history that we don't fully understand. But what we can understand is that while many live only for this world, the city of this world, we are part of the city of God. We are going to that city and are already part of that city in a limited way through the church. While the earthly city may wax or wane in its prosperity and its strength, the heavenly city, the city of God stands permanently in its security, joy, and hope. The earthly city will eventually be destroyed. The heavenly city will never be destroyed. This is his fundamental assertion in this book. We are to live for the city of God, not for the city of man, the city of this world. Don't be too concerned about your circumstances in this world. Now, in explaining these concepts, this large work ends up covering many different areas of life. In this book, Augustine talks about clothing, sexuality before the fall, suicide, when it's right to expand a kingdom by war, philosophy, the pagan gods, and more. It is quite a work. And it would serve as like a guidebook to medieval theology for centuries. Though medieval interpretation of Augustine's work wasn't always consistent with Augustine's intended meaning in the work. Sometimes they took his words out of context. So that's as much as I can say on the city of God. The last work I want to share with you that relates to Augustine is what he wrote against Pelagius. Who was Pelagius? Well, before I get to that, maybe you've heard of Pelagianism before. What is Pelagianism? Say that again, Leela. Copying? Oh, you're thinking of plagiarism. Does sound similar, but no, this is actually something 
Probably worse than plagiarism. What is Pelagianism? Yeah, Steve. Right. That's right. Yes, so in Pelagianism, you can, you don't need Christ to save you or to, to do holy works. You are actually able to do them on your own. The fall didn't really affect anybody except Adam. Now, where did this come from? Well, it came from the person it's named after, Pelagius, a British monk who came to Rome and then North Africa. Pelagius was someone who presented his teaching maybe from a, a zealous origin. He was appalled by the sinfulness and worldliness of the Roman people, even Roman Christians, and he thought that solution to rediscovering holy living was to correct people about their ability to do righteousness. So many people going around saying, man, I sin, I sin, I'm such a sinner. Oh, man, thank the Lord for Jesus Christ. And he's like, man, these people don't realize that they have the ability to do holy living. They can live holy. And the reason that they can do that is because they've always been able to do that. He came up with a teaching where man never lost the ability to do good. Adam, when he sinned, he was a bad example, but man is no worse for wear because of Adam's sin. Man only needs a law to show him what's right so he can choose righteousness. And when a man chooses to follow Christ and to do good works, well, that person will be saved. This was Pelagius' teaching. Now, when Augustine encountered Pelagius and Pelagianism, he was appalled. And you can see why, just listening to his confessions earlier, his whole conversion struggle was related to his inability to stop sinning no matter how hard he tried. He couldn't give up his old life. So everything Pelagius was saying was contradicting Augustine's own experience. So what did Augustine do? He went to the scriptures to see what was really so, and he thereby became a staunch opponent of Pelagius. He said, this guy is wrong. And it's because of Pelagius that we get that we get Augustine's explanation, really, of the doctrines of grace before Calvin and before the Reformation period. Because Augustine himself argued against Pelagius that God is the only one who can accomplish salvation. It is a work totally of God. God must be the one to do everything because man cannot save himself. Here's a little bit from Augustine speaking about the doctrines of grace, and God's sovereignty and salvation in his work on nature and grace against Pelagius. Man's nature indeed was created at first faultless and without any sin. But that nature of man in which everyone is born from Adam now wants the physician. It needs the physician because it is not sound. All good qualities, no doubt, which it still possesses in its make, life, senses, intellect, it has of the most high God, its creator and maker. But the flaw which darkens and weakens all those natural goods, so that it is, has need of illumination and healing. It is not contracted from its blameless creator, but from that original sin, which it committed by free will. Accordingly, criminal nature has its part in most righteous punishment. For if we are now newly created in Christ, we were, for all that, children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love with where wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by whose grace we are saved. You can see he's quoting the scriptures directly. No, we did inherit something from Adam, something that darkened everything about us, and that's why we needed a physician to heal us. That's why we were children of wrath before, and we need God to create us anew. Couldn't, 
have contradicted Pelagius more strongly. Now, amazingly, even though he presents these things in his work, he clearly explains biblical salvation in his writings, the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church would end up adopting a view going into the Middle Ages of the fall and of salvation. That's actually not what Augustine argued. They would embrace, uh, actually, let me back up. Much of what Augustine wrote and preached over time would become twisted to mean something else. Maybe you've noticed in the excerpt I just gave you, where he talks about was darkened, weakened. You could interpret that in a way as if to say, but we're not totally dead, just mostly dead. This would become the view that would emerge in the Middle Ages, semi-Pelagianism. What is semi-Pelagianism? Anybody explain that? Right, right, right. That's exactly it, yeah. So semi-Pelagianism, rather than Pelagianism that says, hey, we weren't affected by the fall at all, and Augustinian's explanation of biblical theology, which says we were made dead, spiritually dead at the fall, we inherited that original sin, semi-Pelagianism says we were just wounded. We were wounded through Adam. Um, so we, we find ourselves sinning so easily, but we still have enough ability to choose God. If Jesus helps us, we can choose God in good works. It's just really a toned-down form of Pelagianism that doesn't really represent what the Scripture says. In this view, the grace God gives for salvation is not salvation itself, but the ability to choose salvation for yourself. Some will choose God by this grace, and some will not. And this, of course, is still the view of the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church today. It is the semi-Pelagian view, which says you have some contribution to make in your own salvation. You can choose God because your spirit was only wounded at the fall. But that's not what the scripture says, as we've seen. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. God had to make us alive. We would have never have chosen him. He had to create a new heart in us so that when we were made alive, we could do nothing but choose him and gladly do so. Now, as we've emphasized before, just because semi-Pelagian became the dominant view didn't mean that the true articulation of salvation from the scriptures, even the true gospel, was totally lost. But we're going to see as we go into the medieval period, obviously not today or anytime soon, but when we come back to that part, when we do that next level of the course, Right when it seems like the true understanding of salvation has totally disappeared, that's when you start to see the seeds of Reformation. Different groups in the, in, in the uh, Western church, and I think the Eastern church too, are saying, wait, let's get back to what the Bible says. You see these pre-reforming movements, and then they bloom in the Reformation period. But what's interesting about those movements, especially in the Reformation period, is that when some of the church fathers in those days are trying to get back to a biblical view of salvation. What is the church father? Who is the church father that they look to most prominently in doing so? It's Augustine. When Martin Luther and others are talking about biblical salvation, they say, but this is what Augustine was saying way back when. We didn't come up with something new. This is what the Bible has always taught, and Augustine articulated it himself. So, 
There's much more we can say about Augustine, but we will have to stop here. I do want to close with one other excerpt from his confession. This is from the beginning. This is how it opens, really. It shows Augustine's heart, but really ought to be our heart. It is, you can say a lot about maybe where Augustine got some things wrong, but one thing he didn't get wrong is that he loved his Savior. He worshiped and enjoyed God, and we really can learn from that. Here's what Augustine writes in his confessions. Great are you, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power, and of your wisdom there is no end. And man, being a part of your creation, desires to praise you. A man who bears about with his mortality, the witness of his sin, even the witness that you resist the proud. Yet man, this part of your creation, desires to praise you. You move us to delight in praising you. For you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you, Lord. And those who seek the Lord shall praise him, for those who seek shall find him, and those who find him shall praise him. Let me seek you, Lord, in calling on you, and call on you in believing in you. For you have been preached unto us, O Lord. My faith calls on you, that faith which you have imparted to me, which you have breathed into me through incarnation of your Son, through the ministry of your preaching. Amen. Next time, we will finish our course by talking about the fall of Rome and the church's transition into the medieval period. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. You are indeed the God to be praised. Lord, it's encouraging just to hear these testimonies from the past. These men weren't perfect. Their Bible interpretation needs work, and yet, you converted them. You truly saved them, and they loved you, and they loved to preach your gospel. Thank you for Ambrose and Augustine and these other people, Lord, and for Monica and these righteous women of the past, Lord, who were instrumental even in the salvation of some of these church fathers. Lord, we pray that as they were faithful, we would be faithful, and the same love that they had for you, we would have that love, and even in a double portion. Lord, let us truly know you and love you and love to praise you and make you known. Pray that that would be something that increases even by the service today. In Jesus' name, amen.